0: Never understand the consciousness of another animal because our um umwelts are different. Literally, like our our, our sensory data gathering apparatus are different. We're picking up different signals, so we create the world out of our perceptions. Our reality are based on our perceptions. We all live in different worlds. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals organizations for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting nothing is ever the same again breakthroughs our mission is to decode the neurobiology
1: of flow and cognitive peak performance access the minds of maverick scientists groundbreaking innovators and world leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance so you can feel your best perform your best and accomplish your boldest goals I'm your host, Rian Dorris, and together with best selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Dorris here with Flow Research Collective Radio, and welcome to today's episode. Now, Today's a special one. It's an interview of Stephen Kotler himself, but what makes today kind of special is that one of our colleagues here at the Flow Research Collective, Jeremy Jensen, is interviewing Steven. Now, Jeremy's a speaker. He's a mountain sports athlete. He's an amazing all-around guy and just immensely passionate about helping people lead authentic, intentional lives, rich with flow experiences. And... With us here at the Flow Research Collective, Jeremy works as an enrollment advisor. So if you have ever applied for Zero to Dangerous or you're considering it, you'll probably end up speaking with Jeremy along your application process at some point. Now, in this episode today, Jeremy interviews Stephen on a number of really crucial topics. They talk about the mega trends that are ahead in 2021 and the cutting edge technology that's going to be emerging and how that impacts the goals that you may or may not want to set for yourself. They talk about the intersection of neuroscience, psychology, and psychopharmacology. and they talk about how peak performance and flow can expand empathy and environmental awareness, which Stephen believes is a crucial component to solving our current environmental crisis. Stephen's view is that changing people's state meaning helping them access states like flow of expanded empathy and awareness is crucial in order to solve the environmental crisis. And Stephen will break down that nuanced argument in today's episode. So you're in for a treat. Now, before we jump into the episode, I want to make a quick announcement about Stephen's new book that's coming out right now. If you've ever hoped that some of Stephen's previous books like Rise of Superman or Stealing Fire, Bold and Abundance would have a how-to section or a set of clear, actionable tips that you could implement first thing Monday morning. Well, The Art of Impossible, Stephen's new book coming out this January, is exactly that. It's a practical playbook for unlocking peak performance and achieving the impossible. Now, what do we mean by the impossible? Well, that's decided by you. You're the one who decides what accomplishments currently seem outside the realm of possibility for yourself and Stephen's book and the practical actionable peak performance advice and tools that you'll learn in that book are going to help you unlock elite performance so you can accomplish those goals that currently seem impossible and if you want to go ahead and grab a copy of the art of impossible you can do so at theartofimpossible.com You'll also get a whole suite of free peak performance bonuses, about $1,500 worth of free bonuses, from a masterclass on learning to creativity masterclasses and a number of other things. So go to theartofimpossible.com, download the book. But for now, enjoy hearing Stephen and
2: Jeremy all the best with this episode. Oh, man, I'm, I'm really pumped on this conversation. Uh... You know, there's there's so much to dig into, but I definitely, you know, first and foremost, just want to thank you for your work. I mean, stealing fire and, and the rise of Superman, which you know is particularly relevant to my my action sports audience, has had a big impact on me. And I know it's it's been great to learn from you both through your writing and in person, and you know, at the event in Santa Cruz. But, uh, so I just want to say thank you and keep up the good work. I definitely want to dive into. Uh, your newest book uh, last Tango on cyberspace um, and uh, and your new company too the uh, flow research collective and um, so without further ado I think this book the uh, the last hang on cyberspace wow as, 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 as I can say having just finished it literally this morning the book is fascinating on so many levels and it's you know whether it's the intricate character development, the the social and cultural critiques, the neuroscience, emerging technologies, you name it. Um, tell me how the book came about and and why
0: it was novel and why now? So, um, it's a great question and it's a good place to start. I have been writing, as you know, um, and thank you, by the way, for your kind words, um, but I have been writing a lot of books on disruptive technology, abundance, bold, bold, uh, Tomorrowland, and even in part Stealing Fire. And I wanted to know what tomorrow looks like, in all honesty. And the problem with those books, even though they're all about emerging technology and how it's going to reshape the future, is the books have to make sense. So i got to tell the story sequentially, and i got to tell it one tech at a time, one innovation at a time. But the future is not one technology at a time or one innovation at a time. It's everything at once. So I wanted to put Everything that I knew of that was kind of in a lab or in the world already and just not kind of widely distributed into one world and create a world and use it to tell a story so I could play in that world and I could see what was going on. And the point, I guess, is so Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of artificial intelligence at Google. Um, And really one of the smarter guys in the world about kind of technological prognostication and has been very, very accurate with his predictions because he's basing them on exponential technology curves and there's good math underneath it, et cetera, et cetera, and good research. And he has pointed out that over the next century, before the end of the century, we're going to experience 20,000 years of technological change. This means we're going birth of agriculture to the Industrial Revolution twice in the next 81 years. That's a massive amount of change. It means that nothing, nothing at all is going to be the same. And I just wanted to, like, look at what that was going to be like five years from now. And the reason for the novel was you can't do it any other way. Right. You I can't. You've read those other books, and it, they give you a sense of the future, but they don't give you a sense of the world you're about to be living in. So that was really the main thing. Is I I really wanted to create that world, and I wanted to bring all the stuff that I have been working on, right? Because there's technologies, there's psychedelic and consciousness altering technologies that are coming into the foreground, um, in our world right now, and though they're not really an appropriate for books like Bold or Tomorrowland, right? They they just didn't fit. So I was in all those books, I was telling a third of the story. I wanted to tell the complete story so people could get really get a sense of what was coming.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So basically on some level, the, you, you're postulating, right? And that that can only be in novel form.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I always tell people I read nonfiction for facts and I read fiction for perspective. Um, and 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 because it's hard you know, one of the things about writing all this is true about every one of my books, you never end up writing the book you want to write. You end up writing the book that is like three, two or three books sort of. I don't want to I don't want to say the wrong word is dumber. Um, but uh, you and, and the reason is what when you start describing things that, you know, and, you know, the story you want to tell, you start to very quickly realize, oh, wow, I got to tell my reader three or four things they need to know before I tell them this thing that I want to tell them. And by the time you write those three or four things, you, you realize, oh, crap, this chapter suddenly got 50 pages long. And what do I do? Um, and that happens all the time. So you end up writing sort of like an in, you, you end up writing an introductory book when you wanted to write the advanced text, because the advanced text is all the questions that I have, right? All the things I'm curious about, what I'm looking at now, and you don't get to do that. I I always say, like, you know, I started writing about flow in West of Jesus, um, and it wasn't, you know, Stealing Fire probably had the content that I wanted to put into West of Jesus, and it was four books later. So writing a novel, you don't have that problem. Right, I can, and the other thing is I can, I can put things into characters, mouths, have somebody have an opinion and somebody else can argue with them. Right. You can start to show all sides of something very hard to do that in nonfiction consistently. Right.
2: That's an interesting, I didn't think about that framing of it. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, well, I mean, so let me back up just a little bit and I mean, sort of a, um, broad question, but why,
0: why do you write like, what, what do you get out of writing? I get flow out of writing. I mean, more than anything else. Right. Um, I, you know, I have been writing since I was four years old and I think I write for the exact reason we just kind of walked through with with uh, last hang on cyberspace, which I think I write to make sense of the world. Um, And I because I oftentimes insights that I didn't even know I'd had come out in the writing. You're like, oh, this is this is what I've been thinking. This is what it looks like. Okay. Um. So I think a lot of it is our right to make sense of the world, and a lot of it is, you know, writing and skiing are my two main sources of flow. And if I get cut off from either of those, bad things happen. Just ask my wife.
2: <laughs> Speaking from experience, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I break a bone and it's and I'm going into the ski season with a broken bone, my wife just starts hiding. <laughs>
2: She knows no bueno, huh?
0: Yeah, she knows if there's snow and I can't ski, bad things are happening in my head. Oh man, that makes two of us, my man. Um,
2: cool. So tell me about the title uh, to the book. I know angle, cyberspace. Yeah. So I know, you know, I know William Gibson when describing the mind space produced by the web. Um you know, came up with the term cyberspace and he even called it a shared consensual hallucination, which is really interesting. Can you talk about how the title came about and what it means? Um,
0: so I, 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 how, I don't actually know how the title came about In because the funny thing about the title is that last tango in cyberspace, I had the title. It was going to be the book that became stealing fire. Oh, really? It started out called last tango in cyberspace. And it was going to be a, a very different book, and then I changed it to something called Mapping Cloud Nine, um, which is itself a very different book, and actually is coming out as an audio book in the fall um, part of which you heard when we were together at fourteen forty because that that speech I gave from Nietzsche to now, yeah that content that's a lot of it and it just and and then um So I sort of decided to partner with Jamie and we've decided to focus on the revolution and altered states, uh, which ended up becoming Stealing Fire. So I had the title a long time ago, um, five, six years ago, and I just it needed to be something. Um, And that's not unusual for me to have titles 10 years before I have books to go with them. Um, That's that's actually fairly typical. Um, But what it means to me is the end of something new. That's what last hang on cyberspace means, and and you you reference Gibson, and that's part of what I'm talking about. So what Gibson was getting at, right, with the internet being a shared consensual hallucination, and how it sort of tilted the mind space of humanity. If you're old enough to remember, kind of pre-internet, and I well, I am, and I do, um, the world was much smaller. Much, much smaller, more isolated, much less interesting, much less diversity, much a lot of those things. And then all that actually changes, right, is you get a there's a blue wire in your telephone that they start using for a different purpose, right? That's all that changes to produce the Internet, essentially. Sometimes they got to put the wire in. Sometimes it's already there. But that, and suddenly the entire feeling of reality, the feeling of the world changes, right, And Gibson, one of the points with kind of cyberspace is that technology has a huge impact on our reality. It shapes our reality in ways that we don't quite understand. And that's changing very quickly now. And on a low level, right, William Gibson called it a shared consensual hallucination, as you pointed out, with shared being the operative word here, right? Right now whether it's the big technology companies sort of editing, you know, our social media for us or fake news, take your pick. We can no longer trust the information that's being shared. So it's corroding something fundamental. That was the first thing I was talking about. And the second thing I was talking about was in terms of the end of something new was that those 20,000 years of technological change we're going to experience over the next 81 years, right? That means five years from now, the world we're living in is going to be radically, radically different. Um, and it's going to feel differently. The texture, the phenomenological texture of reality—if you want to use a technical term—there um, is going to shift, and that's what I was trying to get at.
2: Yeah, th- that was definitely salient uh, throughout the book for sure. This this topic. So on a high level, and so the protagonist, Lion Zorn, um, you know, is an empathy tracker. You call him, and, and, and obviously, empathy is one of these main themes of the book. So, why the focus on empathy?
0: Well, so as you may or may not know, you know, I've been actively involved in environmental causes. I mean, since I was a teenager and, um, you know, I care a great deal about plants, animals and ecosystems. And so empathy to me is our secret weapon. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, and let's start with the environmental and then we can go elsewhere. But eco psychology is the. Side of psychology where they study our perception of the environment, our perception of the ecological world. And there is 50 years of research in eco psychology. that says, hey, by design, the brain filters out information because we get bombarded with so much information every second. The brain has no choice but to filter out almost 90 percent of it. Right. What gets what makes it through to consciousness is very, very limited. And it's mostly. Mostly shaped by two things, stuff we're afraid of, right? Basic survival needs, basically, um, and our goals. And what the research says is, man, if you spend all your time living in boxes and staring at screens and your brain filters out what's not important, well, it's going to start to filter out the natural world. The natural world becomes unimportant in that situation. So a lot of a lot of top scientists think one of the reasons we're involved in a giant environmental crisis on every level you can possibly imagine is because we are literally unable to perceive the very thing we are trying to save. So how do you bridge that gap? Right. And the way to bridge that gap, the way you actually shift perception, the way you start to see more of the world is empathy and this is true with other people and it's true if there's a message inside the last panel in cyberspace it's probably empathy for all right empathy for all humans obviously but also empathy for plants and animals and ecosystems um and to me that's the point if you don't have that if we don't shift in that direction i don't think we have a chance um to solve the environmental crisis we're now facing
2: no, that's fascinating. That's a really interesting angle. And I mean, what is your relationship to empathy?
0: Tr- so empathy is interesting for me because, um, as a journalist, which is where I started out, actually, let me back that up as a bartender and then a journalist. Um, empathy is a critical skill. Like if you want to make tips as a bartender, you better learn to be empathetic with your customers. Right. And if you want somebody to open up to you as a journalist and tell you really hard stuff, they don't like talking about, which is the job, you have to be empathetic. Um, and you know, and, and some of it is also, I grew up in a really strange community. Coventry was the name of the community in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was a, it was a punk rock outlaw, mini outlaw society in Cleveland, Ohio. And, and back in the nineties, which was when I was growing eighties and nineties, if you were a weirdo of any kind, you ended up at this four block stretch of street known as Coventry, which had a coffee shop and a head shop and and an alternative restaurant where they, you know, served hummus back in the day when you could only get hummus at vegetarian restaurants, right (laughs) (laughs) back then. Um, and, uh, so they had, and it, you know, communist bookstore and, and, and all, all this. But what ended up happening is if you were weird and you lived in Ohio, at least on the east side of, of Cleveland, you ended up here and it was everybody. So it was punks, hippies with communists. The comic book artist Harvey Picar used to hang out there, like just on and on and on. So I got to know very early on, right before long before I was even out of high school, people from everywhere. And one of the lessons I learned back then, and I I hold this um, and there's a sort of I got a longer story around this that I'm not going to tell you, but there's I I can back this up with it with a story if you need me to. But I, I fundamentally believe and what I learned along the way is I don't think there are very many stupid people in the world. I haven't met them if there are. What I've met is people who speak very different languages. And if you can figure out what language somebody speaks, you can talk to them. And if you can talk to somebody in their same language, pretty much everybody on the planet has one thing that they're pretty good at or great at. And so my thing has always been figure out what language somebody is speaking and figure out what it is that they're great at and learn from them. That's always been the thing that's most interesting to me. And that's always the thing I've done everywhere. And that requires a lot of empathy. to do that stuff, and it, you know, it carried with me from childhood into bartending, into journalism, and you know, now in the work I do, uh, my wife and I run a dog sanctuary. So, like, you know, we're on the front lines here in New Mexico of this stuff, um, and um, that requires a tremendous amount of empathy. All the work with the natural world requires a tremendous amount of empathy. It's heartbreaking, of course, right? Empathy, empathy takes a toll on you, um, but uh, it, uh, it is also the secret weapon. Rilke called it the poet R- Rilke and empathy was wasn't discovered, as you know, because you wrote the book, right? Empathy wasn't a word until the 18th century, right? We didn't have a term for it and it came into existence in the 18th century. Um, and Rilke called it his superpower, right? He was a poet. He was trying to get inside other people's heads and express things. And, and you know, he called it a superpower. And I think certainly for our creatives, it is.
2: Well, that's a good segue, because I was going to ask you about Rilke. So, so you cite, uh, Ryan Marie Rilke throughout the book. Um, in fact, there's, you know, there's even a movement and a culture around his teachings in the book, this idea of live the questions. And um, so what does Rilke mean to you? And, and, and what does
0: live the questions mean to you? So that's an interesting question. I, for, I mean, Rilke has always moved me. Um, as as a poet. Um, I started out as a poet, by the way. My, not a lot of people know that, but I'm really? trained. My, yeah, my undergraduate degree is actually in, it's creative writing, English and creative writing, but my specialty was poetry. Like When I came out of college, um, I was a poet. My senior thesis was a 110-page epic poem that I realized probably around page 79 that it would work better as a fiction book, as a novel, than as a poem, and I switched. And that Epic poem that was my senior thesis actually became my first novel, my first book. Eleven years later, that epic poem was a book called *Angle Quickest for Flight*, which was my first book. Um, so I started out as a, as a poet. And um, Rilke, I mean, live the questions. To me, is just the best advice ever, um, because oftentimes our goals are fuzzy, right? But our curiosities are a lot clearer, right? And, and to me, first of all, um, for an empathy perspective, curiosity is another secret weapon. Um, curiosity is sort of the foundation. You need curiosity to if you're going to get to empathy. Um, and so live the question is, especially if you're interested in going after big things, right? I'm interested in trying to decode the neurobiology of the state of consciousness known as flow. And that's a question I'm living, right? It's, will I get there? I don't know, but it is a question that I've been now living for 25 years. And, you know, it's shaped my life, but I don't know exactly where I'm going because the science isn't there yet, right? So, right, Um, and some of that is also, you know, as an action sport athlete, right? If you're always pushing yourself, right? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I, right? You're living the questions. They're physical questions, right? And your ass is usually on the line when you're living them, but those are good questions to answer too. Yeah. the Ones you don't know the answer to. Exactly. Am I going to come out the other side intact? Am I going to come out the other side in pieces? Sometimes in pieces, right. sometimes intact.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so talk to me about the the technology, uh, the emerging technology themes throughout the book. I think, I mean, there's just some really interesting ones, right? Like the the holographic food menus and autonomous taxis and various forms of AI. And I, I, I think one of my favorites was like the haptic ways like navigation uh,
0: product. Uh, um, the licking, the licking plug in, imp- licking yeah, plug in. Imp- exactly. It's an impact. Just so your your listeners know what we're talking about. Um, it's an implant that goes behind your ear that gives you traffic signals. Literally, it's waves signals. But it's, instead of buzzing, it you get a sensation like you're being licked by a small dog. Um, because if you think about haptic implants and things like that, you're not going to want something that buzzes. Right, you're you're gonna want different sensations than that. So that was one of them. The but really what I was trying to get at and, and and the easy one to talk about is the the holographic menu. So holograms are coming. I mean holograms are coming to the point that I know a guy who's trying to build this the holodeck from Star Trek, right? The entire room where you can walk in and live in an in, in an alternate universe, and it's not far away. Like they think they're gonna have high-end holographic rooms before 2030. Wow. And holograms, Those are some of my favorite Star Trek episodes, actually. Right? And, some, and some, but the holograms themselves are going to emerge a lot earlier. So I, the book, in my mind, is sort of set 2025. And by then, not only are we going to have holograms, the point is it's a holographic menu, right? Like they're just in a restaurant and the menu rises out of the table as a hologram. It's not a big deal. That's the point. The point is that all this sci-fi Star Trek, crazy technology, like it's only science fiction for the first week it shows up. And by like month two, it's just how you order dinner. And that's the point I was trying to get at is it's doesn't like it's not whiz bang at all. It's pedestrian. It's mundane. And that's, that's the thing that is so interesting because, and we're, you know, we're living in this very unusual time where a lot of sci-fi ideas are becoming sci-fact technologies, right? More and more and more keep getting checked off that, that list. And it's a, it's a strange thing to be thinking, not only am I going to be living into science fiction, but it's not going to look like science fiction. It's going to look like a menu in a restaurant. And that's really, to me, at least strange. That's a really hard thing to think about. And I want to, you know, so it was really important to put it in the world that way. Because yeah. right, think about, think about it. I would, ha- I'd be writing if I was telling you, but in fact, I talk about holograms in this a new book that I'm working on with Peter Diamandis. And we've got a section on augmented reality and virtual reality. And here's what's coming in augmented reality. Here's what's coming in virtual reality. And let me tell you about what's coming in holograms. And of course, because I'm telling you about what comes in holograms, I'm going right to the holodeck right? Because that's the sci-fi big bang. ending. then I'm skipping over the more, like I'm skipping over the fact that this, no man, this is like, this is how you order dinner, right? Like (laughs) forget about it. This is just how you order dinner.
1: (laughs) Hey there, Rian Doris here again. Sorry to interrupt for a quick moment. I wanted to remind you that if you want to Pre-order Stephen's new book, theartofimpossible.com. We have over $1,500 worth of peak performance bonuses that you can access immediately. They will get dropped straight into your inbox just for the price of the book, which is about 30 bucks. So it's a really, really super deal. And it's theartofimpossible.com to claim the bonuses. The bonuses include all sorts of cool things like secret chapters from Stephen's past books that he never ended up releasing. They include an impossible goal setting masterclass how to set goals the right way they include a course on mitigating distraction and maximizing attention to accelerate into flow and much more so you're going to love the bonuses go to theartofimpossible.com or click the link in the show notes and you can check out and get them dropped straight into your inbox all righty back to the episode
2: So, with this idea of these technologies, you write write how these technologies will shift our uh, umwelt. Can you describe what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, umwelt is a a German word um, for the world as we perceive it. And all that means is different creatures, different animals, different mammals, different insects, whatever, have different umwelts, right? My dog has a 280 degree field of view, all dogs do. Right, so they don't see the way we see. They see 280 degrees, and most everything is blurry to them um, because their field of vision is so so wide. But they can smell right ten thousand different scents that I can't detect at all. So their umwelt, the world that they live in, is very very different. Thomas Nagel, famously a philosopher, argued uh, in this very famous uh, essay called "In uh, the Mind of a Bat." Where he argues basically that we will never understand the consciousness of another animal because our umwelts are different. Literally, like our 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 sensory data gathering apparatus are different. We're picking up different signals, so we're live. We create the world out of our perceptions. Our reality are based on our perceptions. We all live in different worlds. Technology is giving us the ability to extend our umwelts, um, and this is a. Uh, you know, we are getting, for example, um, we are starting to get the very first artificial vision implants, right? I was actually in the room, uh, years ago for a Wired magazine cover story. Uh, the, I think the article was written in 99 when the very first artificial vision implant was turned on. In fact, funny side note, when the very first blind person was made to see again, inadvertently, I was what was seen. Um, really? Which is really, yeah, so I'm in the, Claim to I, fame. I, I'm in the, <laughs> I, well, I'm in the lab, right? I'm sitting across from the blind guy. He's got a prosthetic camera kind of punched into his eye. He's literally got like uh, circuit cable uh, jacks coming out of the side of his head that are like literally plugged into a computer, literally. Um, and uh, I'm sitting across from him. He's blind. The scientist who's running the experiment is sitting next to him. And there's a couple of texts at the end of the room. And and, I'm, and there's nobody else in the room. I'm directly across from the guy. And I realize, it's literally the countdown, 10, 9, 8, and like 7, I'm like, holy crap. I'm a journalist. I'm supposed to not be in the story. And I'm right in the story. Like, this guy is about to open his eyes. And I'm about to be written into history. And you can't do that. That's bad form as a journalist. So I get up and try to move to my left. Well, the guy's blind. He spent the past 20 years tracking motion through sound. So, of course, I get up, slide to my left, his vision, he turns his head, follows me, right? And then the thing goes on, and I'm standing right there, and he's looking right at me. And there I am in history, trying to avoid being history.
2: You're I think the first thing he sees. That. <laughs> that's hilarious.
0: I always I tell that story in Tomorrowland and I always say the moral of the story is that you can't get out of the way of technology no matter yeah. how you try. Um, so anyways, those artificial vision implants are now getting to the point. For example, my, my buddy David Eagleman at Stanford University uh, has a new company and he's got a um, a haptic wrist sensor. It buzzes on your wrist and it turns sight into touch or excuse me, sound into touch. um, And it can detect ultraviolet. So literally you wear this thing and suddenly you're seeing in ultraviolet, right? You're detecting ultraviolet and that's outside our normal um umbelt. He's expanded our um umbelt. In fact, David tells a funny story about being on a hike in, I I, I wanna say they were in San Diego. It was him and a guy named uh, Rob Riley and a science fiction writer. and they were wearing these things and they uh, started, their wrists started buzzing and they were like, what the hell is going on? And they looked around and they realized there was an infrared camera pointed at them. Um, and that's what it was picking up. And it was probably the very first time in history somebody had done that. Somebody had detected, you know, infrared through a buzzing on their wrist and it was that moment when it, when it shifted. Um, but that's happening more and more and more. And when technology shifts our perception, our world changes, right? That's when I talk about the phenomenological texture. Phenomenological, by the way, is a very fancy word for how things make us feel, right? So how the texture of reality is going to make us feel when our umwelt expands via technology, the world changes. It doesn't just, it's not just more, it's different. And what I mean by that is... I said earlier that your brain takes in a lot of data per second. The numbers, and they vary, and and there's still arguments going on, but the number that most people like is 400 billion inputs a second. Consciousness is only 2,000 outputs. It's a really small sliver of what's going on. This is why empathy matters so much, right? Because those 2,000 outputs, if you're not empathetic, you're never going to see the world. Um, But those 2,000 outputs, that's just how we work. So if you change your Umwelt, it's not like you're going to get 2,500 inputs. Your brain is still going to filter stuff down. You're just going to get a different 500 inputs than the next guy. And if you're only dealing with a reality built out of 2,000 inputs, if I shift a couple hundred of them, holy crap, you're in a different world. And that's what's coming.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of these technologies and and the corresponding uh, shifts in in uh, are 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 here, or if if not here, are, are rumored to be here, right? Is I mean, most of the things you talk about in the book are not so fiction, right?
0: No, the only th- the, 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 the there's a central drug, right, that the plot revolves around it's the quest to figure out what the hell this thing is, um, and uh, other than that which is, I don't even want to say it's made up. It's not even made up. It's just probably 10 to 15 years out. Everything else is is here now in labs or, you know, five minutes out, including some of the weird stuff. Like, I don't know if you read, uh, if you remember at the end of the book, he walks into customs and in JFK gets off a plane, the protagonist, and he walks through an aquarium into customs, yeah. right? The reason is, and this is real, they have it in the Middle East, We have facial reading technology right now that's really, really good at tracking emotions and tracking biophysical signals and things like that. But you can disguise it. You can fake it. You can change your facial expression and kind of deceive it a little bit. But what they realized is that we are so programmed as a species to notice other forms of life, right? It's fundamental to our survival. Anytime you you move into an environment, the first thing your brain wants to know is what is alive here. Because what is alive here um, is either, you know, it's either a threat or an opportunity at a really basic survival level, right? I can mate with this thing, I can eat this thing, or I might have to run away from this thing. So the brain is always noticing life, tracking life, and you can't actually track that stuff and um, keep your facial expression locked in. It distracts you enough that your actual facial expressions start to leak through. So they've got these aquariums now that people walk through into customs and there's face reading technology on the other side of the aquarium and the aquarium's there so you can't disguise it but you're literally going to walk through a tunnel surrounded by fish when you come into customs. Really? Into a new country. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that one's out there.
2: Wild. (laughs) So you uh, you mentioned this fictional drug right and maybe that's 15 or so years out and i know psychedelics and and pharmacology in general is, is a big topic of the book why can you talk about just y- your research and your work maybe in the more broader flow field uh and then also just you know non-ordinary states of consciousness and how you know that made its way into this book and why it was a key part of the book
0: Well, the first thing you need to, we need to talk about is what's happening right now in psychopharmacology, right? Psychopharmacology was, you know, until Alexander Shulgin came along, we had like 12 psychedelics, 10 psychedelics, eight psychedelics, right? And think about, and I'm not even a huge psychedelic fan, despite the fact that I've written a bunch of books about them, but think about how much change has been brought into the world because of LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and a couple other substances, right? Massive amounts of change in the world. Marijuana, a couple others, right? Because of these substances. And we only, we have very few of them, but here's the thing to know. We've got artificial intelligence already and it's getting better and we actually have the first quantum computers. They're online. In fact, you can go to RigettiComputing.com and you can download Forest, which is their user-friendly interface for their 16 qubit quantum computer. Um, That's about to become 32 qubits um, in a a couple of months. So you can literally use a quantum computer if you want. So low-hanging fruit for both AI and quantum computing is drug discovery. It's the easiest thing or one of the easiest things for these systems to do. So when people talk about what's coming in quantum or what's coming with AI, the real revolutions that are, that are the low-hanging fruit next 10 years are going to be drug discovery and material science. But coupled with the drug discovery, if you read Stealing Fire, you know there's a guy named Lee Cronin at the University of Glasgow um, who is building a 3D Chemical printer, right? It's basically a 3D printer for chemistry. And his idea was hey, we can make prescription drugs downloadable, right? Like you live in Africa, 50% of Africa uh, doesn't have roads, and 50% of the roads that do exist wash out half the year during the rainy season. And if you have AIDS, which is a big problem on the continent, you need to take very specific drugs every day at very specific times. And if you can't get to the freaking doctor or pharmacy or hospital, you're screwed. So Yeah, He's building a 3D printer, right? So you can order your drugs from home, right? All over the world, huge advantage. But if you think for a moment that this thing isn't going to be hijacked by, you know, psychopharmacologists, experimental outlaw psychopharmacologists, right, who now have AI and quantum computing sort of wet labs to lead their drug discovery. And they've got 3D printers to make the stuff on the back end right what was 12 psychedelic compounds which got expanded by alexander Shulgin to a, a you know a couple hundred right that he tested in and, and wrote about in Pical and pecal tecal and pecal um it's going to become tens of thousands very soon so we're going to see a huge explosion in all kinds of things psychopharmacology this will be new drugs new hallucinogens new psychedelics i remember this was back in the 90s, and I, I, I was warned off the story, um, so I never ended up doing the story, but uh, you'll understand why I was warmed off in half a second. But Rolling Stone hired me because there was a new – there were biker gangs in, in northern California who had been experimenting with – biker gangs were the original LSD cooks in the, in the in the beginning anyways. And they had sort of gone back into LSD, and they the rumor was they had invented a version of LSD where you only hallucinated smells. And I went on a quest to find it. And I, you know, I grew up around bikers and eventually my phone rang and somebody, somebody from my childhood said, Hey, Steven, this is David. Stop asking questions. It's like, what? (laughs) It's like, Stephen, do you know who this is David? Do you know who I am? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. From black in the Coventry, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, you rode with the so-and-sos and, and and he said, yeah. Okay. So you know who I am and you know who I'm calling from. Stop asking questions or you're going to have a problem. And I'm going to call the rolling started. I was like, guys, I've got as far as I can go. (laughs) The guy who just called me is an enforcer for the Hells Angels, and I'm out. Yeah, I'm out for sure. No brainer. So all this stuff is coming. It's coming fast. And it's interesting. And, you know, the drug in question is obviously a drug that expands empathy. And we've already got, right, MDMA does that to a certain degree. Um, And I wanted to kind of push that a lot farther because we're also, you know, we now know a great deal more about how empathy functions in the brain and the body. We don't have it all the way down, but we are starting to get a sense of the recipe. And so, of course, we're going to start getting more and more drugs that increase empathy um, at really, really deep and foundational levels, if for no other reason than our survival seems to be at stake
2: this idea of empathy. I mean, I think it's so important and and I love what you said in regard to the environment. I mean, how, how do people
0: be more empathetic? So I'll tell you, this is, this is a funny story. And then I'll tell you how, how to run the experiment. So I, my wife and I, 11 years ago, right? We moved to New Mexico and my wife wanted to open a dog sanctuary. And, um, I was just an animal geek. I loved animals. I was actually running a different nonprofit. I was, I was helping kind of inner city kids, uh, learn how to be sports writers. This program thing uh, called uh, the reporters gym. I was running with the LA Lakers and uh, some other people. And, um, I hated it, man. I hated teaching kids. It wasn't my thing. I wasn't good at it. And I didn't like, I didn't like anything about it, but I really, I was a big believer in service. I think you should always have a part of your life devoted to service. And, um, I was tired of working with humans and I met my wife and she was doing dog sanctuary work. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. And so we moved to New Mexico and, you know, opened a a dog sanctuary, basically. Um, And we worked with a lot of feral dogs, right? Really abused, abused animals. And a lot of these animals had been abused by men. So what I very quickly, we ended up with like three or four dogs that were wild and hated men and would try to attack me all day long. Now, we work primarily with small dogs. So these are not, you know, they're chihuahuas sized dogs. But like you get up at three o'clock in the morning to take a piss. The last thing you want to do is be attacked by two dogs who are trying to bite your ankles in the dark. (laughs) Right. Like that does not go well. And this had been going on for weeks and months and probably a couple years where literally every time I moved, these four dogs would try to attack me. And one dog in particular, Misha was an exceptional problem and I was losing it. I was screaming at the dogs. I was behaving really badly. And when you've got traumatized dogs, can't scream at them. And when you've got a wife who loves traumatized dogs and you're screaming at the dogs, and you're trying to rescue them, that's a bad combination, right? That's that's a very easy way to end your marriage. It's a very easy (laughs) way to feel like a hypocrite. It's a very easy, right? So I had to do something very quickly. And so what I decided I was going to do was I was going to treat Misha like my brother, literally like my brother. And when Misha was trying to attack me, I would just assume Misha was my brother having a nutty, right? Like I've seen my brother lose it. And I don't scream at him. I don't get mad and wanna punch him in the face. He's my brother. I wanna calm him down and make him realize he's safe and he's okay, cause he's having a nutty, right? Like it happens to all of us. So I just started pretending that Misha was my total equal and was my brother. And I just started thinking of him that way. And a funny thing happened. First of all, I got massively empathetic towards Misha. And second of all, I started noticing because my perception widened, right? Once I had the empathy, my perception widened and started. I started noticing things about Misha's behavior that i had never noticed before. And once I started seeing those things, I realized what I was doing to set him off. And I altered my behavior a little bit. But the stuff was totally invisible to me until I started thinking that way. So I always tell people Um, environmentalism, ecology always starts at home. It starts with the plants and animals in our own life that we're closest to because it's easiest to do this with them. So here's a fun experiment for the next two weeks. Think about trees or think about the animals in your life. If you don't already as your absolute equal, as your brother, as your sister, as family that way, and just think about it and try to relate to them that way for a couple of weeks and watch what happens to your perception. That's the cool experiment to run because it's gonna change the world you live in and it's gonna do it really quickly. I
2: love that, I love that. Um, I'll definitely try and encourage people to do
0: that because I think that could be game-changing. It's really game-changing because it's really, like every one of us, the problem with a lot of personal growth, right? I know this from the flow work is that with anything, learning is invisible, right? You never, with anything you're good at, right, you were bad at it until you worked. And that's just the way it always works. And unfortunately, that's a long blind process for a lot of things. Empathy, because we're hardwired for it, because it's a secret weapon, because it's our biology, it works really fast. So unlike other kind of personal development stuff where you really have to work at it hard for a very long time to see any change, this shift happens really quickly and it's really fast um, and it's really interesting, which also, by the way, tells us something really interesting in a world you know today that is, let's just say um, hate speech and things along those lines seem to be on the rise in ways that we haven't seen for a little while. Maybe it's always been there and we just didn't notice. But one way or another, there's a lot of it these days. And what's so funny is it can be fixed so quickly because we're hardwired for empathy. We're hardwired to shift perception and that change can happen really fast, which is interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating.
2: I know you write and talk a lot about flow triggers. Um, Is empathy a flow trigger?
0: Not that I know of, but uh, That's a great question, Jeremy, actually, because it probably is. Yeah, Yeah, because what we know about flow triggers, right, is what they do. Flow only shows up when all of our attention is focused in the right here, right now. So that's what all the triggers do. They drive attention into the present moment. And there's different neurobiology. There's three different ways the brain does this. Um, And the triggers leverage these three methods, but that's besides the point. But empathy absolutely pulls your uh, attention into the present moment for sure. Um, and that's interesting. It it would be, of course, empathy has got to be a group flow trigger, but of course the next question is, well, how do I empathize? Right? right. And that's, I mean, and the truth of the matter is how you empathize is, um, the starting block is always going to be curiosity. Yeah. That's the secret, right? Mm-hmm. So find a way to get curious about the other, the thing that scares you. And by the way, this also is biology. This is interesting. So anxiety and excitement are the exact same neurobiological signal. Same thing happens in the brain and the body when we feel both. Um, The only difference is sort of the frame we build around the experience. Um, And in fact, it's very easy to turn anxiety into excitement And there's a couple of different ways. One of the easiest is curiosity. Curiosity is actually the hinge point. In fact, a lot of uh, humans can feel anxiety and excitement at the same time. A lot of uh, lower order mammals, cows, for example, can't. And they switch back and forth. And the hinge is curiosity. Really? Yeah. The hinge is curiosity. If you can get curious about something else, And start asking yourself questions. You can usually start removing that anxiety that this other thing makes me scared. Oh, this other thing is interesting. I'm curious about it. I'm a little excited now. And it literally switches off anxiety and switches off some of the things that, that kind of block it. So in a sense, I guess you can train and you could use it. It's interesting, that sounds like um, a new research project for the Flow Research Collective is what it sounds like. And I, the, the good news about that is uh, we have a partnership with a guy named Glenn Flox, who's at USC, and he's done some fantastic work on empathy and gratitude and things along those lines um, already. We're doing creativity research with him and Flow. but. Um, I like I, we even have the scientist on board to 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 kind of poke at that.
2: Yeah, I'd love to hear how that goes. I mean, can you talk briefly on that note, just around you know, because it made me start to think of you know all the, the concepts of that you talk about a lot around um, transient hypofrontality and the, what's going on in the prefrontal cortex. I mean, do you think there's a relationship there too? I mean, like a, like a neurochemical. Um, I don't know. Okay. Um,
0: and, I, and and one of the reasons, the reason I'm hesitating is um, some of the uh, mirror neurons and spindle cells that that underpin empathy uh, are in the prefrontal cortex. So uh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. So, But, I mean, mind you, the entire prefrontal cortex does not seem to turn off and flow. The vast majority of it does. But a couple spots stay active. And I don't know if anybody's looked at mirror neurons yet.
2: Hmm. Wow, that's that'd be a cool inquiry. So yeah, let's let's. I'd love to get more into just your your more broad flow of work, and definitely talk about the rise of Superman. But uh, before I do that, I mean, I think I definitely would recommend folks check out Last Tango in Cyberspace. Uh, like I said, very oh. fascinating read around uh, all kinds of topics. I mean, I, the, the 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 ground you cover in this book is it's impressive. <laughs> so. That's so Cyberpunk. surprising
0: to me. It's really funny to me that people I've, – I've heard that a couple of times recently, um, and I tried to contain that story. I tried to control it and, like, not inundate – like, I tried to – I didn't try to do that. I actually tried to do the other thing, and I – like, that. for example – I kept a lot of things out of the book, right? Virtual reality, which is coming hard over the next year or two, is only in one scene. Cryptocurrency and blockchain is only in one line, um, right? So I actually, I really, I really tried to be sparing with it, but it didn't work. <laughs>
2: well, I think to that point, I think where it's like you get these mentions without you diving into them, but the mentions are vast,
0: if that makes Yes, that's sense. probably true. Yeah. It's probably yeah. true. Um, Which, but I also like people are vast, Yeah, you know what I like, it, it's, it's, it's strange to me because people pointed out that the characters seem to go all over the place. And I'm like, they don't go all over the place. That's just like shit. Me and my friends talk about when we're hanging out. Like nobody's going anywhere. Like I haven't seen conversations go. Cause otherwise I wouldn't know how to write it.
2: Yeah, no, honestly, I loved that part of it. There's just the stream of consciousness, like uh, the humor. I mean, all of it baked in. I mean,
0: oh, yeah. I'm so glad you got the humor. Oh, yeah. The humor yeah. came out. So yeah. a funny story about the humor, because when I was originally doing, the ad copy for the book, I was emphasizing some of the humor. Right. And my editor uh, called me up from St. Martin's and he's like, hey, so I love everything you're doing, but I'm just not sure the book is going to be as funny as you think it is. I think it's going to be very funny to people who get it and who understand what you're doing. And he was, we had this long debate. I was like, no man, the book is laugh out loud, funny every couple of pages. Um, and I, and I argued he was wrong and I was like, fine, I'll take it out of the copy, but I'm going to prove you wrong when this book comes out. I
2: think you did. I honestly think you did. And I talked to a few other folks, uh, in our, in our cohort here and they, they were saying the same thing. So it's not lost on, on us. Oh,
0: thank God. I'm so glad. (laughs) And now I can do my favorite thing in the world, which is call up my editor and be like, dude, you were wrong. Prove him wrong. I was right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I've got a fortune cookie that my wife gave me that's pinned to our refrigerator that says, I take great pleasure in proving other people, in doing, in, in proving other people wrong. And I was like, well, okay, yeah, there's some of that. Fuck you. <laughs> that's funny. She's like,
2: we're keeping this one, this goes on the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> so, talk to me about. I mean, your early days of uh, being a journalist, and, and and specifically in the in the outdoor adventure and, and action sports space, and and why. I mean, maybe that also segues into into you know some of your earliest flow writing, or maybe it doesn't. I mean, t- talk to me about that. I, I know this would really resonate with this community, and they'd love to hear about that.
0: So, um, so my, you know, all the work in flow has two origin stories, and one of them is the fact that I got very sick when I was 30 years old and, and ended up using flow and surfing to sort of cure my illness and I wanted to understand where that came from. But the story I want to tell you goes kind of back further than that. I became a journalist in the early 1990s. And back then, action sports, right, brand new thing. Surfing, skiing, rock climbing. These were really deep countercultural, subcultural sports that suddenly were everywhere. X games are happening, gravity games. And back then... If you could ride and ski or ride and snowboard or ride and surf, ride and rock climb, there was work. And I wasn't really great at any of those things. Um, though at the time I actually thought I was a lot better than I actually was. Um, you know, that humility that comes from getting on a mountain with professional athletes. <laughs> like once once that happens, you're like, Oh yeah, I suck at this. Okay. Yeah, I was wrong. I really truly suck at this. Okay. Slice the so, humble pie. Very humble humble humbling. But uh, what ha- you know, so I, but I started, you know, chasing professional athletes around mountains. Uh, I was also covering science stuff at the same time, but a lot of what I was doing for a decade, you know, I was living in squaw, um, and splitting my time between squaw and San Francisco. So I knew that whole squaw Valley, you know, the early back when we were calling it extreme skiing, right? This was way back in the day. Um, I knew a lot of those people and I spent a lot of time with them. And if, you know, if you're not a professional athlete and you spend all your time with professional athletes, you're going to break shit. And I broke a lot of shit. And what would happen, I'd be hanging out, be doing whatever, and I'd snap this or that. And I'd take three or four months off. And when I would come back to the sport, the progress I saw was amazing, was astounding, right? Like stuff that had been absolutely impossible, never been done, never going to be done three or four months ago before I broke something was not just being done when I got back. It was being iterated upon. And this caught my attention. It caught my attention for a lot of reasons. One. Like my friends really were routinely accomplishing the impossible. And that was totally puzzling. And it was also puzzling because you probably know this. If you go back into action sports in the early 1990s, it was a punk rock, irreverent, rowdy group of people without a lot of natural advantages, mm. right? A lot of the folks I knew didn't, they came from crap childhoods and broken homes. They had very little money and a lot of them had very little education, and yet here they were redefining the limits of the possible for our species on a regular basis. So what the hell was going on was my question. How is this possible? And, I, you know, I don't I don't know if this happens anymore to people, um, but I, I man, I so remember. I remember being in Alaska with Chris Davenport and we were uh, it was the very first Red Bull snow thrill of Alaska. And it was at uh, Girdwood and the helicopters couldn't fly because blizzard, it was just, blizzards were just coming in. So the only, like literally there were like 30 professional athletes in town and nobody else could even get into town. And, um, you could, you know, the lifts were running. And I remember we got into the Christmas shoots, which I still think are one of the steepest, uh, inbounds, you know, shoot anywhere. In Alaska. Um, and, yeah. right. Uh, and then, and I'm, uh, if you know the Christmas shoots on the left side of them, it's a huge cliff face and um, I'm skiing into them with Davenport and I see the cliff face and I cut right and Dav's keeps going and he linked 4 you know, he did a, a, a series of just pop and drops and he linked four tiny patches of snow together on what was like an 85 foot cliff face. Right, he dropped 20 feet onto a platform and dropped 20 feet onto another, and, you know. Though it was a, it was a, it was a billy goat line. Um, it was a pillow line without the pillows really, um, long before anybody was doing that. And I remember watching him do it because my first thought was, holy crap, he doesn't know where he's going, he's gonna die, right? Like that's, a, I was just looking at what I thought was like a 90 foot cliff that he was skiing off of without knowing it was there. And it looked like magic it looked like the guy was defying the laws of gravity. I'd never seen anybody do anything like that at the time. And that was all the time. And it was a really strange thing watching your friends defy the laws of physics, right? It, does, it doesn't make any sense. Um, now it does because we've, we've gotten used to it maybe in the way that we're going to get used to holographic restaurant menus. But back then it was not that way at all. And it really, I was just fascinated. I had to know what was going on. And you know, as, as you know, from reading the books at any time you see the impossible becoming possible, you're seeing a state of consciousness known as flow.
2: And so would you say that was the proper introduction to, to this topic? I mean, through, through action sports or was it? Yeah, it
0: was definitely, It definitely came in through action sports and what had happened is it, uh, but, but I don't know the exact number, but by the time, you know, I was 27, 28, I had broken something like 71, 72 bones by that point. Oh well, Jesus! I, yeah. I mean, I had shattered everything I shattered. I put 65 fractures into my legs at one point. And yeah, so I did a lot of damage to myself. Um, and I knew two things were going on. One, uh, th- what was going on in like journalism had changed, right? In the beginning, it, it, in the early nineties, Man, if you went to the jungle and went to the Amazon rainforest and just hung out and checked it out, that was adventure travel and you could get paid as a journalist. But by the end of the 90s, shit had gone crazy and the journalists themselves had gone crazy and guys were doing, you know, Robert Penn... Warren, whatever his name is, was writing books about the world's most dangerous places. And suddenly, like if you wanted to do a story for a magazine, it wasn't enough to go hang out on the Amazon. You had to go, you know, get kidnapped by child soldiers and they'd have to cut off your hand before you had a good story. And I was just like, Holy crap, like I'm not getting kidnapped for a good story, right? Like that and that was stuff was happening. And I and I had broken so many bones, I knew I had to get out of action sports. And I really, I wanted, I was so obsessed by the this question of what does it take to do the impossible? I just took that question into every other domain imaginable. That's what I did for the next 30 years, right? Every one of my books, even if you can't tell from reading it on the, from the outside, because maybe I don't put it in, in plain language, every one of them is an investigation into a group of people who are tackling impossible challenges. Tomorrowland is people turning science fiction technology into science or science fiction ideas into science fact technology. Abundance is individuals taking on kind of grand global challenges, poverty, energy scarcity, water shortages, things that 20 years earlier, the only people would go at were large corporations and big governments. And here were individuals doing these impossible things and succeeding. Right. So and on and on and on. So every one of my books is really this question of what does it take to do the impossible? It took really, until I was right around the time I was writing Rise, for it to all really come together. And um, when I, you know, I had, I I had been putting the pieces together, but by the time Rise happened, neuroscience had progressed to the point that you could really peer inside the brain, right? Like when I was writing uh, West of Jesus, which was my very first book on flow, literally Andy Newberg had just at the university of Pennsylvania had just done the first fMRI study that, um, gave us a picture of, uh, it wasn't even transient hypofrontality at the time, but it was the same kind of mechanism. Um, and that had just happened. We didn't have the neurochemistry at all. We had some ideas. Um, there was a little bit of work done on brainwaves. There was no work done on networks. The psychology was still squishy. And by the time I got to rise of Superman. We had really good brain imaging studies of flow, and we had more of the neurochemistry dialed in, and we had more of the brain waves. You know what I mean? It was a real thing by then. So it took I sort of progressed along with the science. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and in the rise of Superman. I mean, you you obviously focus on action sports athletes. You know the likes of the big big names, right? The Shane McConkeys and Dean Potters and Laird Hamiltons and. What was
0: that process like? So some of it, first of all, I've known, I mean, I knew those were my friends, right? I knew Shane, Jesus. I I mean, I met Shane in 93 or something, um, right as he was sort of becoming Shane McConkie. Oh, that's right, right, because Squaw. Right there, right? Because the squaw, right? Yeah. I remember J.T. Holmes is in the book. I remember when J.T. Holmes showed up at squaw and Shane was skiing with this kid, right? This who's this? Seven, he was like sixteen or seventeen at the time, and it was like, who is this phenom that Shane's skiing with? Like, who is what? What is this? And so I knew a lot of those guys. I met Laird. Here's a funny story. ESPN. I don't even know when. Uh, late nineties, like ninety. Eight ninety nine, maybe I did a story called Grandpa's about the three old men of action Sports who were clearly going to have to retire soon and it was Laird (laughs) Hamilton uh, Tony Hawk and Sean Palmer and this was I mean Laird at that interview uh, when we met he was just inventing the hydrofoil and had just 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 started towing right like that was it was brand new at that time Uh, Tony Hawk I don't think Tony had even thrown his 900 yet. And, uh,
2: and their (laughs) grandpa,
0: Sean, Sean was the only one who did sort of fade from view a little bit. Um, right. But he, I mean, he's still, a lot of people still talk about him as a goat. Um, but you know, the, a lot of the people I wrote about in that book were just friends of mine. Right. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let's go. I mean, sometimes it was, let's go find, you know, I knew I wanted to do a base jumping thing and I knew JT was going to be my guy because of the Red Bull Air Force. But, you know, I had to call up JT and be like, dude, what was the gnarliest thing you've ever done? And, um, you know, because that I wasn't, I, that was the, I didn't know what which scenes I wanted to use. And there were certain stuff like. I will tell you the truth that there was a lot of great action sports stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor because my editor put her foot down and was like, I am fucking sick of hearing about the action sport athletes get enough. Really? Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) Yeah, the entire, uh, what got cut, the thing that got cut that really bummed me out that I will at some point release was the evolution of the very first flow trail in downhill mountain biking and the North Shore story uh, of, of where flow trails and obstacles and all that stuff first came from dangerous Dan Cowan, building the first trails up there, um, was really, is really a cool story, right? Yeah, Cause I'd love his that. flow trails are really interesting because what they started to realize is that he would, he figured out is, and there's, we now understand the neurobiology underneath this, but he started stacking stunts, right? So like at the start of the trail, you'd have a little skinny to ride over that was maybe half a foot off the ground. By the end of the trail, right, that was 20 feet off the ground and everything got harder and harder and harder. But what he was doing was stacking obstacles and upping the challenge skills balance, upping the risk level. He was doing very specific flow trigger work, to, and he was specifically building a trail to alter consciousness. He did it by design in the best way he knew possible. And we now, I mean, flow trails are an industry, right? Gravity Logic comes to Snowmass, and I think they got paid $2 million to build Valhalla and a couple other trails. This is a huge, huge, huge business in the action sports industry. Yeah, they're the funnest trails to ride. And they are literally building architecture to shape consciousness, and how cool is that? So it's a cool. business, right? It's a business. There are people you want Gravity Logic. You don't want the guys down the road building your trails because they know what they're doing, and what they know how to do is build trails that will alter your consciousness. How crazy is that?
2: Oh yeah, I hope you release that at some point. Okay, so so the the book itself. I mean, you interview all these guys, and I mean. They're clearly the pioneers, um, and and that's the sort of angle you take in the book. Do you was that always going
0: to be? Yeah. yeah. So uh, was it always going to be that? Yeah. Um, it was always going to be the athletes. What we did a little bit of a bait and switch because I knew I couldn't pitch the publisher a book on flow entirely. Too early. It was too early. Nobody knew what it was like. Rise of Superman really kind of made flow part of the common vernacular. But it was really not at that point. So I couldn't. uh, I did a bait and switch. I pitched them a book on athletes doing the impossible. And uh, when I started to write the book, I sort of wrote the first chapter. And I knew as I was writing, I was like, you know what, this whole book should be on flow. And I, I sort of stopped. And I did a bit more research to make sure there were a couple more science components that I didn't know if they were already, you know, there. And so, yeah, that, that was, I, I made the whole book about flow. That wasn't in, that wasn't what I sold the publisher. Um, though I'm pretty, I'm sure everybody's happy that I made that decision, yes. but that, so it, the action sport athletes were always going to be there. Um, the uh, it, w- it was how much of the book was going to be a flow that, that expanded um more than anything else and the other stuff still got in there you know what i mean because i wanted to talk a lot about i i I would have written a slightly different book had i been writing it now because obviously there's so much more research um now but i really wanted to talk about things like the kind of temporary autonomous zones that were action sports communities back in the 90s like squaw valley jackson Right, Whistler, people were places where, where the community was congregating because they were they were skunk works, right? They were they were basically little laboratories studying the bounds of human performance. Um, and the, in, instead of being run by scientists, they, especially at the time, they were being run by, you know, I I always tell people like you know the wildest people I've ever met in my entire life was the action sports community back in the '90s. We were out of our freaking minds. Um, it was. I mean, it was, it was just, I mean, I, it was, I, you know, I saw so many insane things for so long. It was just common, you know, common knowledge, but it was the craziest thing in the world. Cause I was like, oh my God, these are the wildest people I've ever encountered in my life. And I was a journalist who got paid to seek out kind of wild people and write about them. And nothing was crazier than what was going on in action sports. And yet these were laboratories for human performance. Which was also, you know, totally bizarre. Wow, what a
2: serendipitous sort of uh, coming together of your your interests. Yeah,
0: I, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't think, in hindsight, like, there weren't that many people on the planet who could have actually done that book because you had to both have all the neuroscience and psychology, which. You know who, how many people specialized in neuroscience, psychology, and action sports as a as a right? Like, what a weird thing to specialize in! Right, um, and it, it just became sort of my niche. And you know, the bridge was obvious to me, but there weren't that many other people in the world who would have noticed.
2: So, the kind of transitioning to um stealing fire. Do you feel like a that book, Rise of Superman, needed to come first, and B? Did the sort of mainstream, well, I shouldn't say mainstream, but you, you, the likes of like DOD and Google and, and these various, uh, organizational entities, um, adopting flow and peak performance and, and those types of things. Did that, that came later, right? Just to, just to kind of fact check, like, like the pioneers yeah, were well, truly the athletes.
0: I mean... There were a lot of pioneers, right? Because flow is fundamental to music. It's creativity, all that stuff. So there were a lot. I focused on the action sport athletes. I could have just as easily done it about musicians on tour, you bands. tour. Sure, you know sure. what I mean. It wouldn't have been the stories wouldn't have been as sexy, but like you could have done it with any, with with a bunch of different groups at that time. But for sure, um, it wasn't the mainstreaming of this stuff. You know, it, it, that community that brought all these things to the mainstream, we all knew each other back in the 90s and back in the late uh, early 2000s as well. The scientists involved, because there's not really a line between flow science and psychedelic science and meditations. You know what I mean? That you're, They're all altered states of consciousness and people on the outside looking in, we're drawing these lines, right? Because psychedelics are taboo, but you could talk about flow and meditation was, you know, blah, 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 Um, but on the inside, it's roughly, I mean, so is schizophrenia. Like these are all related fields because of how they tilt the brain. So, you know, it, that was, that was the world, the world, uh, I was in anyways, um, the revolution in people starting to utilize these states of consciousness, I think also started then, Um, uh, I mean, probably earlier, but uh, in in more mainstream ways, it was definitely going on. um, And and certainly the Silicon Valley Burning Man crossover influence was, I think, the biggest. Like, that's what I think really mainstreamed all this stuff um, more than anything else. But, you know, I mean, Stealing Fire was nominated for a Pulitzer, which is crazy considering how mainstream you have to be to get there. And I I always tell this story. So the first time I was in Europe, which is much more conservative towards a lot of these ideas than the states are, and I talked about flow uh, and I talked a tiny little bit about psychedelics was in 2014. And afterwards, the guys who held hosted the event, it was a big business event. They pulled me aside and they were like, man, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have talked about psychedelics on stage. That's not, you can't do that here in Europe. And I went, okay, fairly noted. Thank you so much. In 2017, I was in Zurich. So the most conservative city in Europe, the most conservative country in the most city, the most conservative city in the most conservative country in Europe. And I am at a business conference and it's not even a business conference. I'm at a business to business conference, like the most, like the most mainstream business straight, whatever in, you know, a city run by bankers. And I get up and I do a flow talk. My first talk, is all on flow. And I, and I, it's a, it's a real flow talk. Um, and I, and everybody loves it and I get a standing ovation afterwards, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, has Europe changed? And then the guy gets up to talk after me, and he's talking about microdosing for peak performance. (laughs) And I am just – like I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, are you freaking kidding me? Like we have gotten to the point that this guy – like I was literally told – by the host organizers were earlier. pissed off, right? Yeah. Three years later, this is literally, I couldn't believe what was going on. And so the shift has been really, 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 really radical. Um, and, you know, its it's been, there's reasons for this, right? Like I always say, if there's a point, if there's a moral to stealing fire, it's that most of the so-called quote unquote skills that we need to thrive in this century, right? If you if you talk to experts and if you look at all the lists and whatever, you end up with things like creativity, collaboration, cooperation, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look into the literature, we suck at training those skills. Right? We are terrible and terrible at training those skills, and there's a reason for that. We keep trying to train up sets of skills, and what we need to be training up is states of mind. The way evolution shaped our brain to solve cooperative problems, creative problems, innovative problems. Like, is to shift our consciousness. It's not a skill set. It's a state of consciousness. Why? Because you need access to different perceptions. Same thing we were talking about earlier with empathy, right? You need access to different information to be cooperative, to be collaborative, to be creative. And that means shifting consciousness because it changes perception and perception. The information that we get via perception is the starting point for everything that we're trying to do here. So there's a really good reason this is going wide right like all the problems we're trying to solve as a society require shifting states and this is where we are right now if what you've heard
1: on flow research collective radio has been helpful please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you are listening to this Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.